back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and movie makers, the writers, directors, producers, costumers, cinematographers, composers, actors, screenwriters, um, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, and we talk to them. And very excited, very excited with today's show again, um, because we've got Renji Phillip joining us at the midpoint of the show to talk about his new film, The Wake of Light. And I have to say, it is exquisite. It is a beautiful film. Um, It if you have to describe it, it, it falls somewhere in the realm of the sensibility that you get from some of Malick's films. However, an admitted not big fan of Malick, uh, I love Renji's film. I love many aspects of, of Malick films, but on the whole, when they drone on forever, uh, no, it's too much. But I love Renji's film, and I can't wait to talk to him because he's got some exquisite cinematography happening. But his score and uh, the piano uh, work of Josh Kramer is amazing. Um, I want a soundtrack, so I got to talk to Renji about that. But before we get to Renji, you know. I've been waiting for you guys to get to hear this one. Frank Stallone, we all know Sly. And many of us out there know Sly's wife, Jennifer Flavin Stallone, who has the most incredible skincare line on the market, serious skincare. Just giving a personal plug there. Um, but then you've got Frank Stallone. And as so often happens in so many families, when you're riding on especially in show business, where you're riding behind somebody. You're always, oh, the brother of, the daughter of, the sister of. And you might not have the, nor do you want, the same acclaim or to follow in the exact same footsteps as your sibling or parent or even grandparent. Um, Everybody has seen and heard so much about Sly, but not a lot about Frank Stallone. And Frank is so incredibly accomplished. I had the ultimate thrill. I first met Frank 38 years ago when I was working as a quote-unquote gopher. We were gophers back then. Not not production assistants. We were gophers. Uh, and I was working on as a gopher on Stan Alive, which to this day is... Forget about the fact I worked on it and I was there. I lo- happened to love the film. One of the most significant aspects of that film is Frank's music. People had gotten a taste of Frank and his and his street corner doo acapella doo-wop in Ro- in the Rocky films in Rocky, um, which perpetuated into uh, uh, Rocky Two, with Frank also writing some more stuff. But staying alive, he actually wrote I think nine of the songs in the film, and one of the biggest hits of the film, Far From Over. Went on to be number one, was on the charts for over four months. Um, Frank is no slouch with his music. He's had four platinum albums, ten gold albums, five gold singles. He has been in 60 films, including a, a tour de force performance in Barfly. Uh, 
uh, Tombstone, Hudson Hawk, Stand Alive, The Rocky Films, uh, and he's got nine solo albums. He picked up a Grammy nom for Far From Over, a Golden Globe nomination for the, for the entire soundtrack of Stand Alive. And this do- nobody has done a documentary, and few people keep talk about Frank Stallone. And if you haven't seen him in concert, when he does his with him, the American Songbook, oh my God, he can play pop, he can play rock. His career goes all the way back to the 1960s in Philly, and uh, he started his own band called Valentine. Of course, he's had Valentine, Valent- Valentine 1, Valentine 2, Valentine 3. Um, and starting out in his band was actually John Ho- Oates of Hall & Oates. Uh, another Philly guy. But finally, Derek Wayne Johnson has made a documentary on Frank Stallone. Stallone. Frank, that is. It is available tomorrow on VOD and digital. And I got to tell you, it is so much fun. Um, there's a lot of archival material that comes from Frank's personal collections. There interviews, obviously, with Sly Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jennifer Flavin Stallone, Jackie Stallone, Billy Zane, Billy D. Williams, Talia Shire, Frankie Avalon, Christopher McDonald, John Oates, Burt Young, Danny Aiello, Bill Conti, Bas Rutten, Joe Montaigne, and more. And what I love is we go back in time, back to Frank's roots, and we get to, uh, to find out how he got into music, his love of music, and the people that were there when he first started out. Um, Derek has done an amazing job as writer, director, editor, and producer of this documentary. Um, while I would like to have seen more of the early days of Frank, of course, you, you've got to cut time somewhere to get your documentary in at a, at a workable and tolerable level for viewers. But this is so much fun to hear what people have to say about Frank, to see movie clips inserted, to go on this journey. Um, it really, it is so worth a watch. I can't encourage you enough to see it. But with that in mind... Frank and I had an exclusive conversation. And let's face it, folks, most of my interviews are not interviews. They're conversations. And we go stepped beyond Stallone, Frank, that is, and dug in even deeper into things that we shared and parts of his life that really matter and his thoughts on the documentary. So without any further ado, Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Frank Stallone. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Frank. This is a real treat. It has been 38 years since you and I first met. Oh, my God. I was a PA on Staying Alive. You were? Yes. Oh, my God. That's right. You know what's really funny? That is, it's it's scary to think it's 38 that long ago. Jesus, God. And I was 32 when I did it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's, Were you on the New York set or L.A. or both? I was actually on both. Fun. It was fun to do, wasn't it? Oh, my fun God. Time. I love that film, working on that film so much, and watching Sly direct. Director. He's a good director. He knows what he's doing. Especially that climactic Broadway number. 
The way he had yeah. cameras moving, he had command of everything. I learned so much watching him. Yeah. And you know what's funny? He was only 37 years old. Young. I just... Did you live in Northeast? Where did you live? I actually um, lived lived in North Philly the first four years of my life in the 50s and then moved to the suburbs. But my dad grew up in Olney. Oh, I know Olney. Yeah. Sure. I lived in Center City first, and then we moved to uh, Northeast. Northeast. Yeah, went to Lincoln High School. So yeah, fun. Yeah, my mother, my mother loved shopping in Gimbel's, Cheltenham, and all of that. Oh, Gimbel's, John Wanamaker's, Lit Brothers. That's it. Bonwick Tellers, Strawbridges, Ellenberg. Yep. All this place. But I have, I have to say, I am so thrilled with this documentary, Frank. Oh, thank you, Seth. This is such a treat and i've known derek for a number of years and he never ceases to amaze me with what he does with these but so little well that you got a whole lot happening in your life over the decades <laughs> yeah. i mean as far as production i mean there was not a lot of money and he you know he basically edited this in his bedroom it just amazes me now he's real talented man he's a, he's a comer he's, he's gonna do something really big one day he's a very talented guy how did he convince you to do this documentary, or did you convince him to do it? I'm curious no, how this came to be. No, no, no uh, I was. I met him at a place called Pearls, and they were saying, "Oh, he's done this documentary on John Appleton and da 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 And I went to see it, and, you know, and I thought it was fantastic. And and then. We started uh, talking once, and one day he called me up and goes, you know, we'd like to do a documentary on you. I go, me? <laughs> I mean, I've I, I been so, you know, at this point, nothing was going on in my life. I go, really? He goes, yeah. So we said, well, we get to have lunch and talk about it. So I said, okay. You know, and I, and I kind of blew it off because, you know, I get a lot of that stuff, you know. So what happened is he said, okay, we're going to do this thing. And they kind of dragged. I said, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. And then all of a sudden, it started happening. And then I brought, uh, I said, here are all the people I know that I've known through my career. So you can give them a call and see if they want to do it. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, aside from a few people, everyone was really great. I mean, God rest his soul, Danny Aiello, I mean, mm. you know, my brother, Arnold, you know, everyone's in it. And we, I was just like flabbergasted. And I really thank my brother because... That kind, you know, you know how it is in Hollywood. If yep. Arnold and Slyer doing it, other people go, "Well, they're doing it. I can do it." You know, mm -hmm. one of those types of things. And and that's how it started. Just it was a long process. I mean, these guys went on the road, Chris May and Derek, and they interviewed people. But the thing about Derek, which is very good, he he's very he knows what he wants. He's he's very rehearsed. And he knows what he wants when he comes in there. And I wasn't. And I said, "Listen, I don't want to be." anywhere near the interviews because I don't want to influence some of these people I haven't seen in, I hate to say, 50 years. Yeah. And I said, but the most important thing for me is to interview the people I grew up with, I started with, because that's, it's very easy, you know, to sit there and take bows, oh, I've done this, oh, well, Frank was this. 
it's kind of nice to hear people go, yeah, well, I knew he was just like a little squirt, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, and we didn't. And, and I was very touched. I was very touched by some of the kind words that were said to me. So it was really kind of neat. You know, so I was, it was pretty happy about it. I couldn't believe the caliber of people that Derek has everybody talking about you. And I have, I have to say, one of my favorites is actually Frankie Avalon. And well, Frankie, I met, I've met Frankie before, but I met him with my brother. We were, we were in Florida or somewhere, and I don't Frankie off and on. You know, I said, Frankie, do me a favor. Why don't you come to my show? And this was before the movie. Mm -hmm. This was before the movie. This was before any of that. I just wanted to come see me in concert, and he came to see me in concert. And then when we started the movie, I said, Frank, would you mind like doing it? And he goes, Yeah, no problem. And he was because he was really into the movie. He loved the movie. I mean, he loved the concert. So, and what he said was really true because he was like really into it, the show. He really liked the show a lot, and that, that meant a lot to me. You know, Frank Yevlon, Delphi guy. So it's Philly roots. They come out. <laughs> Yeah, they sure do. I'll tell you that. I have to say, you know, Frankie's endorsement telling people whenever you perform live, go see you. Cool. I still want to see you perform live at some place like Vitello's or, or uh, Vibrato. Well, Vibrato's where he came. That's where I performed. Vitello's kind of went a little sideways on us. This time we performed in uh, Vibrato because it's really, it's a better, it's a better venue. It sounds better. You know, they spent a lot of money on the sound, but... You know, I hadn't been on stage in God, almost a year since all this happened. Then I had some back issues, operations. So I mean, this has been—I think it's been a horrible year for everyone. I don't think anyone's had a good year this year. You know, I'm but, dying but, for you to get back out there and perform live because the only oh, time—the only time I've gotten to see you perform live was filming staying alive that's right that's right is there were you on set when i did the thing with john travolta she's in good hands yes were you there that was hilarious you know that i wasn't supposed to i wasn't supposed to be in it i mean i was i just showed up i mean i was wearing actually my street clothes i was yeah. wearing a flannel shirt and, a, and an army m43 jacket and i was just there just i just showed up and seeing what's going on with the music and blah 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 looking at the dancing girls and stuff and that's like well, yeah i got a good idea why don't you uh, you know and that's what he does rocky he wasn't supposed to that running up the steps was not in the script that was something just happened and that's how he kind of rolls you know so but that became kind of a funny scene in the movie hey she's in good hands what do you all stay proud yeah you want disability i mean it's Goofy. You know, that is the very first VHS tape I ever bought was of really? St was when Staying Alive, when it immediately, as soon as it came out on VHS, that is the very first tape I oh, bought. God. And I watched it so many times that I actually it decimated the tape. But to this day, every time I see that scene, I start laughing. Because you were there. <laughs> it's hilarious. And the movie, I think the movie, you know, because the Saturday Night Fever was so big, but the movie, as time goes by, more people appreciate it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a good movie. I thought John was great. I mean, I, it was a good movie, you well, know? What I, I actually, and I say this in all honesty and from the heart, Frank, I love the songs that you wrote for that film oh, more than the Bee Gees songs. Your songs, well, far, far From Over, is amazing, but I'm Never Gonna Give You Up is one of those songs that just, it gets in the heart, it stays with you. All these decades, 
your songs have stayed with me. Well, you know what? I was really, at this point, you know, my career was, I, I guess in all intents and purposes, was over. I was 32. I'd lost my record deals. They just couldn't get out. And when that happened, yeah, I think when I wrote those songs, it was a stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I took the script from the office, and I just read it. And I said, God, this is kind of like a lot like me. I mean, this is how I'm feeling right now. I mean, you know, it's just like nothing's happened. I just, I can't, I just can't get a break. And so, I, so when I wrote the stuff, you know, it was just, it, it was really coming from the heart, and I, and hopefully, you know, it transferred onto the screen. But that, that was a, that was a tough time for me. I, I mean, I honestly, God, don't know what would happen if I didn't, uh, if that wouldn't have happened to me. I don't, I don't know. You know, and even it happening, we had some tough times over the years. But uh, who knows what would have happened if, that, if I wouldn't have gotten in that movie. But there was no chance I was getting into it. You know, I asked Sly at the beginning when I went first time. I said, there's a chance I'd get like maybe a 15 second blurb in there. He goes, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't like I was being welcomed with open arms. And that's one thing that I love about the, this documentary, Frank. So many people think that nepotism always comes into play when you have relatives. And that is not the case here. And I know this. It's not the case in my life. I mean, maybe, you know, I just, I got, you know, I got hammered big time uh, just for being his brother. I wasn't really doing it. I was doing, you know, I was just playing music in my band in Philly and New Jersey. And all of a sudden this kind of fell in my lap. And, uh, you know, it's not like anything I asked for. I mean, again, I'm very proud of, of being in Rocky. I'm very proud of the movie. I'm proud of my brother. It's just that I got hammered along the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And I, you know what's really so weird? And you remember this. I always, they always mention Joey Travolta. I go, excuse me. Joey <laughs> Travolta worked in a gas station. Okay, I was a working musician. So no, there's no even comparison. Right. You know, and, and we did a TV series together, Joey and I, called Movie Stars. And I talked about it. I said, you know, I mean, he was, you know, he's a nice guy and stuff. I said, our careers are not even comparable. It might be the same thing. Huh? But that's what would happen. I'd get compared to this guy, get compared to that guy. But after a while, you know, you just, you, you just have to persevere and do your own thing, you know? You know, how cathartic is this documentary for you? Because I know, I know myself, you know, because my dad worked for FIL and PVI in Philly his entire career, 60 years. So when I start... He worked with High Lit and all those guys. Oh, yeah. Joe Niagara, the Rockinbird. You know who I was just with this weekend? Who? Oh, my God. Yeah. You know what's weird? He smokes like a chimney. He likes to drink, (laughs) but he sounds the same. His wife goes, I don't get it. The guy's had liver transplant, a kidney transplant, two open heart surgeries. And it's just like, it's like, I can't, I don't understand it. But he was, he's great. We were talking all about the Philly stuff. And we're, you know, talking about high lit Joe Niagara. That was a great time in radio in Philadelphia. That was a powerful time. For oh, radio my God. Yeah, and then in the 70s when you had WFIL and the Boss Jocks popping up with oh, yeah. George Michael and Jim O'Brien and Dr. Don Rose. Yeah, it just... It was great. I remember it now. I, I remember when we were doing the Battle of the Bands. We played... Oh, God. I have a poster of Long John Wade 
<laughs> Bill Wright Sr., Jake Cook. Yep. But you know what? They were powerful figures in Philly. They were boss jocks, man. Yep. They were important. High Lit was great. Hyman Lipsky. But he was a handsome guy, good-looking guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, all those guys, man. And, and, you know, Philadelphia was a great radio city. I mean, it was a major market. It was awesome. I'm, did you ever know Fred DiCipio? No. Record promoter? Okay. Yeah, well, you probably wouldn't. That's a different, different world. But, you know, so getting back to this movie, it, it's something I'm almost like, I'm like in this day. I mean, I'm at my age, at 70 years old, to have a documentary done about me after being in the business for, for professionally for 55 years, it's really quite amazing. You know, and I'm and I'm and I'm grateful and thankful. I'm thankful for everything. Listen, I've had my ups and downs like everyone else, but I'm grateful for everything that I'm healthy. You know that I'm you know, I'm somewhat happy, as happy as a musician can be. I don't know, but I <laughs> but I mean, I'm, you know, you know I'm healthy. You know, it's it's kind of sad. I wish my mother would have seen the movie, but she died in September. But she's 99 years old almost. She was shit. And she was just like that. She's in the movie. That's how sharp she was. She was not. She drove till the day she died. I had the occasion to meet your mom on a couple occasions over the years. Yeah. And she was always a force. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. She was. She was. She had her routine. She got up in the morning. She exercised every day. Mm. and practice her piano every day. Even though she was a lousy musician, she practiced every day. Unbelievable. <laughs> Couldn't play one song through, but it was great. Funny, my, 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 my pianist, Johnson, said to her, I, I said, well, you know, he's a, he's a piano teacher. He's my musical director. And so he goes over, he's very British. He goes, yeah, what, your mom's been playing for what, like a month? A month? <laughs> 70 years. He goes, oh my God, alarming you know? <laughs> so when she would say I got my musical talent from her I'd have to kind of interject on that one yeah. that's funny that's funny Frank you're also the, a producer on this documentary so I'm curious how much input you had into the timeline that Derek constructed with this doc and the selection of this, the archival materials of you that we see which is so fun going down, watching you grow up. That because, yeah, because most of those photos are mine. And most of the footage that they pulled, you know, they kind of... So I, I kind of let them do their thing. I don't like getting in the way. But when, when it was kind of getting done, then I put my two cents in. I thought it was really important to uh, have certain people. And there was very important for me to have my band members in from 1965 because... That's where it started. That's 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 the whole crux of the whole thing. How how did it get from point A to point B? So so I was input, but I wasn't like you know kind of like up their butt every day. It was just mm-hmm. like I said, I wanted them to be creative and do their thing, but there were certain things that I wanted as well. And uh, you know, and we put a lot of work into it. He, he did a lot of work. I give him a, I give him a tremendous amount of credit, but I had to say so. In, certain things, you know, that I wanted, certain photos I wanted, you know, certain ideas and stuff like that. But uh, basically, they did the interviews, they asked the questions, and and so, you know, God bless. Is there anything you would have liked to have seen included that's not? Yeah, yes. 
and, and, and that whole thing, the gunfight, gunshot incident, when I mm-hmm. had my, with my hand blown off, I, wa- I had those pictures. <clears throat> oh, my hands were horrible. My fingers were blown up like four times the size. They're all black stitches and stuff. <clears throat> and I, <laughs> excuse me, I wanted to include that in the thing because, I mean, how many guys actually get shot point blank, you know, in Beverly Hills? You know what I mean? So it was like, I wanted to kind of put that in there. And there was some footage that I found later that I would like to have in there, but it's not, it, I mean, it wouldn't have really made the, the movie any different. I don't know if it would have, but I love the idea that uh, my brother explaining our relationship, mm-hmm. like dropping rods of dirt on my head from the bridge, that was like that. <laughs> was there anything surprising to you that came out in, in some of these interviews? Oh, yeah. I was very moved. I, I, I got to tell you, they said, you want to go see a rough cut. So I went with uh, my partner, Dave, who's one of the investors in the thing. He was my manager at one time. So we went there, and I had a legal pad, and I was going to redline this thing. Because, you know, I'm tough on myself, really bad, you know. So I was going to redline this thing. So I was sitting there like this. And all of a sudden, I'm watching the documentary. And this is without music. No music yet, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the movie, and I totally forgot about my pad, and I'm engrossed in this film. But it's not like I'm engrossed because it's me. I'm just engrossed in what people have to say and stuff like that. And a few times I got a little misty-eyed because you know what? A lot of people, I didn't know what people thought of me. You know, you know, I that you know, in those days, in the '60s, people weren't as open as they are about things now. Mm-hmm. And it was very meaningful more that like guys go, you know, we were in the band that fun and stuff, but Frank really took it serious and he was like the one that we felt. And that really meant a lot to me. I mean, it, it's always meant a lot to me to be respected by your friends and your peers. And that was what was really wonderful. And you know, at that point, everyone was alive. And uh, so I don't know what it would be like to see it again if I do, like you know, the people that have passed that were very close to me. But that was the uh, the thing, the, the kind words that people said, that, that meant a lot to me, or like that he, we always knew he had talent and stuff like that. That was like really important because I didn't, you know, honey, I didn't know what they were going to say. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I said, if you think I'm an idiot, say it. I don't care. I mean, that's what makes the documentary, you know, real. I love the humor that Jennifer brought with what she had to say. When it comes to believing stories, she believes you over Sly. I, oh, all the time. Because he has no memory. He, he just makes up stuff. <laughs> I, I have good recall. <laughs> so, so what's next? Because, Frank Stallone, you are truly far from over. So what is next? Well, next, I mean, uh, next is like we're going to be doing TV shows. We're going to try to promote it. Hopefully, this would, I hopefully... Maybe this time this would generate something where I can where I can go out and work more because I mean, I mean this is for a guy like me like this sitting around stuff is not not for me. So I mean, and the thing is I used to work out like five days a week and then I had the two back surgeries and then the COVID. So this has been a bad year for me like it has been for everyone else. And I just want to kind of get back, you know, and I want to get back to playing and hopefully. You know, it'd be kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of booking agents say, oh, what would you sound like? I said, well, you know, why don't you watch a movie on myself? That might be interesting. So that could be a good selling point because, you know, it's happened before. You know, I did some really good movies like Tombstone and Barfly, and I thought things were really going to go. But maybe from this, 
some good will come out, you know, mm-hmm. which I'd, I'd, hope to, I'd hope to. I mean, because I want to, you know, I want to play. I mean, look at my man, Tony Bennett, 95 years old. He's out there, he's singing, he's doing, and, you know, when I asked him, I said, he goes, well, hey, what else would I be doing? This is what I do. You know, I love doing what I do. I drop dead on stage or whatever, you know. <laughs> no, but sir, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. My mother always says, she goes, no, if I die, I just want to go in my sleep. And God, thank, thank the Lord, she went in her sleep. And her faculties were totally together. She was not senile. She was not decrepit or anything. So in a way, that's a blessing. So someone said, you know, how would you like to go? I go, I guess, you know, either on stage or sleeping with your girlfriend. Who knows? I mean, they're both good ways to go. I mean, it could be worse. You could be hit by a train, right? That's that's for darn sure. But yeah, I mean, I mean, so, and my, it might as well die doing what you like to do. So, uh, but I, but you know, I plan to keep doing this for a long time. I'm not, I'm not a quitter. If I was a quitter, I would quit. You know, I will quit a long time ago. There's a lot of people I know they could have never taken that heat. No way, not for 45 years. Mm-mm. You know what? Life's too short for this. That requires a lot of fortitude, Frank. And the fact that you have hung in there, the highs, the lows. And you, you are still, you are one of the most amiable, happy, upbeat people. I, for one, hope this documentary really gets you in front of people again, because you deserve so much more. Oh, well, thank you, too. But you know what the thing is, too? Everyone's been telling my life story since Rocky came out, but me. So this is the first time that you're real. But I'm not really telling the story. I'm kind of like cannon fodder. I'm in between the raindrops here. It's it's everyone else is telling the story. I mean, I'm not too blind horn that much. I mean, most other guys are saying, oh, well, Frank was this, Frank did this, Frank did this. And thank God, thank God I really didn't end up. You know, there's, you know, as you know, you've been in the business a long time, too. There's a lot of fatalities in this business. So thank God, you know, my mother instilled and my brother you know exercise and you know taking good care of yourself because there's a lot of people as we know that have fallen by the wayside and the and but see for me my thing was that i wasn't i didn't have 40 billion dollars in the bank so i can't afford to get sick i can't afford to be unhealthy yep you know because i i have i have to work you know i don't have that luxury of you know these other guys so i have to work so I do try to take extra good care of myself and, uh, you know, and, and do what I can. But, you know, I, I got a, you know, I got a job to do, you know. So I'm hoping this thing will really, I, I, I'm just really thankful that my story's been told. Not that, you know, not, not that everyone else doesn't have a story, but, I mean, I'm just happy my story got told. And, uh, and, and, and people can take out of it what they like. I hope what they take out of it is that, the belief in yourself and the intestinal fortitude to stay in the game. If you believe, if you don't believe you can do it, then get out of the game. Mm-hmm. But if you, you can compete on the world stage, that's one thing I will say about myself. Being a Leo, a little bit of a ham, I, <laughs> it, I you know, I always believe I could perform on the stage with anybody. I was never intimidated by anybody. Like, oh, well, here comes Bruce Springsteen. I don't care who it is. I'll go on stage with anybody. Because I've been doing it. Because, you know, people don't realize in Philly and New Jersey, for years and years, and you know, you went to the clubs, I do four sets a night, 40 years in the state. So I was playing 160 minutes of music a night and maybe taking home after everything, like $22. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's so you know so you're on stage, you know, for a long, long time, and uh, and that's how you, and that's how you uh, that's how you learned your craft. There, yeah. So there was no, I mean, you know, Philly, those those snowy days, driving to a gig for not that much money, so you had to really like it, or you wouldn't stay in it. You could never you could never survive. And, well, and the thing is, you had the public also liking it and making those snowy drives and subway drives and and L yeah, they drives. Yeah, the drives too to come see you. Yeah, I think we're missing that today. I think people have forgotten the joy of that and the dedication. Be you a performer or or an, an audience member, a music lover. Yeah, and when you're a young kid, it was just awesome. Oh. I mean, it was. There's, I'm, I'm reading a book right now by my friend Eric Carmen from the Raspberries, mm-hmm. and almost like it, it, it's almost it mirrors my whole thing through his book. We like the same music, the same thing, the whole thrill of being a teenager playing in the battle of the bands and doing that stuff. It was just really exciting. And a lot of people ask me, "What was more?" I said, "That was a really exciting time because you're young and you're full of dreams and." And you're, you know, you're trying to make it and all that stuff. And that's, that's, that's what it's about. I mean, once you, you know, I mean, that's what Rocky is about. Once you lose your mojo, once you lose your dream and your, it's over. Might as well just cash in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing I got to say about my mother. She, I mean, you know, she goes, every day is hard, Frank. I'm 90 some years old. But she would get up and she would get on that trampoline. She would do her Pilates. It's unbelievable. But she would do that, and she had that will. And she goes, you know, it's a blessing every day I wake up. I go, well, yeah, usually you're 100 years old, it is. But she didn't think like that. You know, she was, she was, a, she was a character, man. She was, a, she was a real piece of work. And, you know, I wish she would have seen the movie, but I think she would have enjoyed it. Well, Frank, I just have one more thing to ask you. Yes, dear. Do you still have the Valentine belt? Yes, I do. Matter of fact, it's hanging in my closet. That's why I'm going on a diet so I can wear it again. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I had a 29-inch waist back then. Yeah, I do have that Valentine belt. I do. Yep. Oh that's my. Funny. That's the first. No one's ever asked me that before, but I still do have that belt for sure. Something told me you did, but I did. I yeah. I had to ask. I had to, and I do want you to know that as soon as I finished watching this documentary, I immediately pulled out my album, In Love in Vain, and had to listen to it. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I love doing that record a lot. I'm, I'm so, thank you so much, man. I mean, we, we, you know, we shared something pretty good, staying alive. We had a lot of fun, and hopefully there's some fun ahead of us after this uh, kind of dreary year. So I'm, um, I'm trying to keep as positive as we all can same here and once you get back on stage anywhere you show up in LA I'm going to be there and I'm going to bring my album so you can autograph it for me uh, anytime hon you got it oh Frank thank you thank you thank you thank you Deb I appreciate it God bless and have a happy happy new year and that was Frank Stallone talking about the documentary Stallone, Frank, that is, and just Frank Stallone's life in general. Um, that was a lot of fun to get to to talk to Frank uh, about this one. And as I said, Stallone, Frank, that is, opens, it releases tomorrow, VOD and digitally. See it, see it, see it. Um, but right now, we're going to switch gears. 
we're going to get a little more serious. And a big, big welcome to Renji Phillip. Hi, Renji. Hello. How are you doing? I am fine. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I have now watched The Wake of Light twice. Aw. This is an exquisitely beautiful film. Uh, oh, thank you so much. I didn't know what to expect. This is your second feature. You've done other shorts. Um, number one, the visuals captivate you immediately. The work of the entire visual tonal bandwidth and the the minute you start seeing the use of color and saturation and the lighting. Um, Rainer Lipsky's cinematography is beautiful. So what the two of you have put together to tell this story from a visual standpoint and the play of light is stunning. Oh, thank you so much. It, it definitely played a central role <laughs> in how we uh, approached making the film, how the light would look at certain times of day, making sure we were able to pivot quickly from one location to another if the light looked better in a different location. Um, it really kind of dictated the whole approach. So thank you for that. Oh, it, it's stunning. And the entire metaphor of the light um, and where it leads you and the faith-based connotations that come with that and even just spiritual connotations in general plays out so well, Renji. Um, you really, oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. You feel this when you watch this film. Um, you know, tell everybody, how would you describe, what is the premise of this film as far as you're concerned? So there are, there are two stories going along. Mm -hmm. the, the literal story is about a young woman who's caring for her aging father after he suffered a stroke. And she's really bound to take care of him because she has a sense of guilt uh, from an event that happened when she was a child, and she kind of blames herself for the situation, her, the, the condition of her father. So she's very dedicated to making sure that her father's okay. And then she meets someone who comes through town who kind of shakes up the whole uh, routine of life that she's got with her father and kind of challenges her to think outside of her own uh, perspective, and it really kind of turns things on uh, their head it, for both characters, actually. So that's the, that's the literal storyline. And then the metaphoric storyline is she's also going through kind of a, well, she's kind of being led spiritually, right? Mm -hmm. she's, the movie opens with her on that bluff, and she's kind of at the end of her rope. She's feeling this, uh, this hopelessness about her situation, and she just doesn't know kind of how much longer she can go on and she feels called to the spiritual aspect of the world around her and that kind of gets her through uh kind of gets her through the story it pulls her through the story and delivers her to the end of where she ends up at the end of the movie mm -hmm. uh and i have to say that the metaphoric story is you have brought that to life so beautifully, not only with Rainer's cinematography, with the play of light, but also through this running theme of our character of Mary. She 
sells bottled water. But it's not just any bottled yeah. water. It's water that it's well water. And for anybody out there that has never tasted well water, once you do, you will not go want to drink anything else. It really <laughs> well water is fabulous and it is so clean and pure. And we get that whole that spiritual, that biblical sense of the water, the baptismal, the cleansing, um, how she passes, you know, sells her bottled water to people um, for a dollar and pumps it every day and fills up her bottles and walks around. It really, I mean, that grabs you and takes hold and carries us through the film as a touchstone that then leads to these other things that are picked up through the cinematography, through the camera work with the extreme close-ups, which are stunning, the dutching of the camera. Um, and it all ties together under the auspices of Josh Mansell's score and Josh Kramer's incredible, incredible piano. I want a soundtrack. I want it now, well, Angie. Well, you will have that opportunity because the DVD actually comes with uh, the full soundtrack of Josh's music. So um, <laughs> that's special music for sure. It is exquisite, and the piano—it's—it has a slight, poignant, haunting tone to it, while at the same time carries you. It's—it's it's very unique in what this music does with this film. You put this music with this story and these images, and it's something I haven't really seen before or experienced watching oh, wow. a film. Um, well, let me tell you a little story about how I came across Josh Kramer's piano music. I was actually writing the script, and I write when I, when I write, I usually have... Uh, music playing and I was I think I was on Spotify or something and I was kind of looking for the right vibe of something that I could write to and I came across Josh's music and it really fit the emotional tone of what I was trying to capture while I was writing the story and I almost wrote the entire script to Josh's music and then I had to make the decision of am I going to you know try and track Josh down and see if we can get him to, uh, you know, use his, uh, allow, allow us to use his music in the film. And we tracked him down. He was living in Turkey at the time, and he uh, graciously let us use his music. And so that music was very involved with the whole process from, from writing the story all the way through. And when we were on the set, I was, again, constantly listening to his music in headphones, I wasn't listening to the dialogue. I was watching the monitor, and I was listening to that music, and I was seeing how it was playing together. So it was a big, big part of making the film. Wow. Well, that umbilical connective tissue there really comes through. Um, really spectacular. But And you mentioned the dialogue, and you don't have the... There isn't that much dialogue, but the dialogue that you have... It's very pointed. It is there to say something. It is not wasted exposition. And then you add in a layer of the character of Mary with voiceover, 
which is so beautiful with some of the montages that you have happening and some of, of the quiet moments of the film. It's a beautiful mix that you have created here, Renji. That is wonderful to hear because it's uh, kind of a slippery slope trying mm-hmm. to find the right balance of not being too poetic but allowing that to kind of shape the emotion. Yeah, and it really does, especially when in every scene where you have the voiceover, tied in there we have an exquisite shot of light of some sort, be it Mary sitting in a church and holding her hand in front of the stained glass window and the light reflecting prismatically as she moves her hand, or sitting up on the bluff, and the sun is just at the horizon line. Um, Just each moment of those voiceovers is tied into light of some fashion, lighting the way. And Mm -hmm. it it works so well. Oh, that's so great to hear. Now, tell me about your casting here. You have a very small cast. You've got Rome Brooks, who is incredible as Mary, and the camera loves her. Matt Bush, everybody she, knows Matt from the Goldbergs, who plays the the stranger wandering into town, Cole, and then an amazing performance by William Morton as Mary's father, Stanley, and then Tyler Steelman as one of her neighbors, Russell, um, who just adores her. Talk to me about these characters and casting them. Okay, so I have worked with both Rome and William on three prior projects. And a very interesting story of how I first met Rome, I was walking through a park with William Morton. We were about to make a short film. This was about 15 years ago. And I saw Rome in the park talking to one of her friends. And... I thought she looked right for a character in the next short film that I was going to be working on. And so I approached her. I asked her if she wanted to read a scene with William, who was with me, in that moment. And she read the scene. And they had a uh, very interesting chemistry that really kind of stayed with me for a long time. It was very deep, and it was very quick. And we developed a great friendship, and we collaborated on three, four projects. And I always wanted to do a bigger narrative with the two of them in mm-hmm. it. And so I wrote the parts of Mary, uh, uh, yeah, of Mary and of the father, specifically for those actors. Oh. Um, so that's how they came into play. And the part that uh, Matt Bush plays, uh, Cole. Matt kind of popped into my head when I was writing the script. I had seen his work in a couple films. One was Adventureland, and Mm -hmm. another was Nice Guy Johnny. And Matt has a very unique sensibility uh, that just kind of popped into my head during the writing process, and he never really left. Um, And so we were fortunate enough to be able to get him for that role. And then... Tyler I had worked with on a short film in the past, so I knew Tyler. And Sandra, uh, who plays Tyler's mother, I had uh, 
been turned on to, uh, I had seen her work in a short film at the Rhode Island Film Festival, and I had really liked it. And so there was no real outside casting job. I, I knew all these people, and I, except for Matt, um, and then we just kind of went from there. I, I like to keep it small. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest challenge of telling a story like this, you know, going from beyond, you know, your your real comfort level of the short film, expanding it into a narrative with the themes here at play, with your the literal and the metaphoric um, storylines and emotional, you know, beats going, what and very little so, dialogue, so you're relying on visuals for much of it. Yes, and a lot of those visual montages um, were not written specifically linear, li- uh, literally like that in the script. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just Mary and Cole walk and talk and take in their surroundings. And so we had to find those moments as we were going along. And I give the cast credit for trusting me because it was all in my head what I was going after. And, you know, lots of times they weren't able to know what that was that I was trying to capture, but they allowed me to to lead them and, and take the direction of kind of working through those moments to find the very elusive quality that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So that was a challenge. That was hard. That was hard. Being out and about in that town, trying to find something that I didn't know exactly what it was (laughs) until I found it. And, of course, this is where the importance of location comes into play because your location is beautiful. Your your location fits the literal and metaphoric aspects of this film so perfectly it gives you wide open spaces to capture that sun, uh, to capture the different types of light that we're seeing at different points in the day. Uh, and it, it allows for those long meandering walks. Um, it just the location is fabulous. And that little town, um, the little center of town, is it, it's 50s Americana, 40s Americana. And it just yeah, it, it just really touches perfect. the heart. We were really lucky to find it. How difficult was it to find this location? Okay, so I originally wanted to shoot the film in Colorado, in a little town called Carbondale in the mountains. And I live in Los Angeles. All the crew and cast lives in Los Angeles, too. And as it got closer to the time to shoot, I thought, well, we better shoot this in California because, you know, we'll definitely be able to find something because California has so many different uh, environments. And I set out on a road trip one weekend. Uh, I think it was Highway 40, Old Highway 49, which is a little little highway that goes up through these tiny little gold mining towns um, up above the central San Joaquin Valley, below Sacramento, kind of on the way to Lake Tahoe. And it was just one little tiny town after the next. And Mm. I drove into Sutter Creek, uh, which is the town we ended up shooting in, and I saw that main street, exactly what you just said, and I thought, this is perfect. Um, And so then I found the farmhouse that was about 18 miles outside of Sutter Creek, and then I went back to Los Angeles and rewrote the script to fit Sutter Creek. Oh, wow. So instead of them 
walking next to the Roaring Fork River in Colorado. It was walking next to, you know, the Stanislaus uh, Stanislaus uh, stream outside mm-hmm. of Sacramento. So um, I kind of adapted the script to that lo- exact location. And, of course, then you have it taking place Fourth of July weekend, which how much more Americana can you get? Uh, complete with blueberry pie and, stre- and streamers and bunting outside and fried chicken and hot dogs. Um, you left no little detail undone. You really paid attention to the details, these little things in this film, right down to Mary's outfits, sunny yellow shirts, um, floral print, but tiny floral print shirts. And the more she gets to know Cole, the lighter her clothing gets. So she starts out, and she's got some darker tones in her blouse and things like that. But then we get into the, the lighter, the cream-colored background with the, with the tiny little, almost a chintz print. And then into the sunny yellow and a sunny yellow barrette. And it's a whole mood changer for Mary. All of that plays in here, and it's just so well executed. Thank you so much. I mean, really, just just amazing. How how long and how difficult was your editing process here to find the right balance, the right tone? That was probably the hardest thing um, because we started editing, and there was an element to the film that wasn't really working. There was supposed to be an element of like a kind of a spiritual presence following her around, but it only looked like she was being kind of stalked. And so it wasn't translating. <laughs> and I thought very early on in the editing process, I thought, Oh, okay, this isn't working. We got to, we got to, we got to retool this. Um, and that's kind of when those montages came into play. We thought, okay, well let's stick a montage here and it's just got to kind of look and feel right and capture the emotion. Um, so it was a really fine balance uh, in the editing room. And that's, that, was, that was a huge challenge. But my, my editor, Matt Dizel, is incredibly competent when it comes to story. So where I tend to be more aesthetically driven mm-hmm. and emotionally driven, he kept me on the path and he kept the story on the path Story-wise. Mm-hmm. Well, see, that, so, that's the mark of a great... That's he was a, my lifeguard. That's a great collaboration there. So it allows you it to see your vision. And the other hand is making sure that that vision comes to fruition so that your aesthetics come through as what they should be. Yes. Yeah. I, yes, because otherwise, you know, if it was up to me... I probably would have come out of the editing room with no dialogue, like a 90-minute, you know, music video of just a montage with, a, you know. <laughs> but we we couldn't do that, so thankfully Matt kept the story on track, and, and we did work really well together. It was a good combination. I'm, cur- I'm curious, Renji, do you approach a feature film different than you do your shorts, or do you approach everything the same? I think it's the same. I think it's all the same. I I write the stories, 
And so I have a very intimate knowledge with what it is I want to try and accomplish and what I want to try and capture with the camera, and then also in post, what type of music supports the story. Um, so really, it's the exact same approach. It's just longer for a feature. Mm. Well, now something I have to ask you about is, in addition to writing, directing, producing, coming up with these great stories and making these great films, you also lecture filmmakers, students, and you're using this film to teach five core steps filmmakers can use to make an independent film with a personal vision. What yeah. are what are those five steps, Renji? <laughs> well, that is supposed to be revealed at the time of the teaching. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, then just give me an overview of your teaching. Okay, so I didn't go to film school. So I don't approach things from a formal point of view except for writing. I'm very meticulous with form and story arcs and conflict from a writing point of view. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to all the other tools you have to make a film, I'm very instinct, in, instinctive in my uh, approach. I, I don't come at it from a formal point of view. And I think lots of times the formal point of view of teaching can possibly bog down the creative process because my thesis in, in teaching and helping young people try and realize and flesh out film ideas is that everyone is creative. Everyone is creative in their own way. And that's what makes people unique. And if you get indoctrined into a certain way of thinking a film has to be made, well, most of those films are going to look the same. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be unique. They're not going to have that personal stamp. You know, they're not going to be uh, like P.T. Anderson. They're not going to be like Inuritu. These are personal visionary filmmakers that rely on their gut, really, to capture what mm -hmm. it is they're setting out to do. And so my five core steps have to do with, like, getting in touch with your gut and then using the tools of filmmaking, mm -hmm. which are far greater than any other art form. Because if you're a painter, you have canvas and paint and paintbrushes. If you're a sculptor, you have clay or, or stone. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a filmmaker, you have story, you have images, you have music, you have sound design, you have dialogue, you have, you have wardrobe, you have makeup, you have lighting. You have so many tools mm -hmm. to create something that the creative approach to fleshing out a story should be the same approach to music, should be the same approach to wardrobe, should be the same approach to props, set design, um, and, and everything. So I, I teach people how to get in touch with that creative instinct that then they can use in every aspect of the filmmaking process. Do you have a favorite creative cinematic tool that lets you fulfill your, your aesthetic vision? the best? I'll tell you, music's a big part of it. <laughs> music is a big part of it. Even though it's not visual, I am continually listening to music when I'm creating visual storylines. Well, it certainly comes through with 
the wake of light you know, certainly comes through with this one. And the film is, I think, truly believe the film is as beautiful as it is and as moving as it is because of that. Because of that being well, your you. approach. So now the film opened on Friday. It opened on Friday, yes. So where now Los Angeles? Of course, we still have no theaters. We have no restaurants. We have no anything. Um, so how? Where can people see the Wake of Light? So it's playing on Lemley Theaters' vir- virtual theatrical platform. So they can go to the Lemley website. Or, or they can actually go to the film's website and then get directed to exactly where it is on the Lemley site. And the film's website is thewakeoflightmovie.com. And we stay with Lemley for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And then on February 16th, we expand to Amazon, iTunes, Apple TV, Google Play, and DVD. Oh, fabulous. And now on that DVD, we're going to have score. We're going to you ha- get a two-disc DVD uh, kind of bundle pack that that has a good old-fashioned CD of the entire uh, all of Josh Kramer's music. Oh my God! Oh my! Now is that available for pre-order yet? Um, it's not available for pre-order, but it's just about available to go out. So, well, I, I go to uh, thewakeoflightmovie.com and. If you could sign up for the audience list, and then the second it's available, um, we'll let you know. Because I was on the website, and I was looking for details, and I didn't see any. So, okay, you've answered my question. So I will be going on there so that I know the minute it's available. Uh, yes. Because it is. Yes, and we're going to be updating the website all the time. So the website is really the point place for routing all the online traffic. Uh Renji, this has been such a such a joy to have you on the show today talking about this film. Um, do you have any, are you working on another film right now? Has lockdown kind of locked you down? Uh, what's, what's going on with more wonders from you? Well, I am starting to noodle on a script that I hope to be my next uh, project. It's a kind of an the tagline is an Asperger's love story. So it's mm. about someone who has Asperger's who meets someone who doesn't. And the challenges and rewards that come out of that combination of people from two different worlds coming together like that. So I hope that that's my next project, if I can pull it off in the script. Well, I think if anybody can pull that off, it's going to be you. Oh. Thank you so much. Oh. Renji, this has been a total joy, and I hope when you get the next film done, you will come back again. I would love to, anytime. Oh, Renji, thank you so, so much. Um, and hopefully we will talk soon. That would be wonderful. Thank you for the time, Debbie. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Renji Phillip talking about his film, The Wake of Light, which you can see Right now, go to the Lemley Theater's website, and you can see it there or wait until the 16th, at which point of February, then you can get it on every digital platform there is. 
Um, tomorrow, you can see Stallone, Frank, that is, on VOD and digital. It's fun. Um, and by the time you watch that doc, you'll feel like you, you really get a sense of who Frank Stallone is, that you know him. Uh, also, I have to mention, have to mention a film that I really love that just opened on Friday. And that is Outside the Wire. It is on Netflix. Uh, Michael Hafstrom is the director. He directed one of my guilty pleasure films, Escape Plan, with Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, it, is, it stars Anthony Mackie, Damson Idris, Michael Kelly, Pilou Aspec, and Pilou I have been a huge fan of um, for many years now. Um, it is an action film. It is set in the not-too-distant future, as in 2036, with the U.S. playing peacekeepers. Uh, drones are in play, and uh, a lot of twists and turns. Robot troops uh, pop up, bearing a strong resemblance to Robocop, to the horrid Robocop in Robocop 2. Uh, it's visceral, it's visual, it is cinematographer is Michael Bonvillain, who's done Cloverfield, Zombieland, Happen Leonard, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, and Richard Krantz, editor. And the sound, Oscar-winning sound team of Glenn Fremantle and Ben Barker. This is the kind of action movie I love to see. There's a lot of thought. It's thought-provoking. Um, characters are great. Performances are solid. Mackie is truly a leading man. Uh, but Michael never disappoints me with his films. And I am so thrilled because when there is an action film with armament uh, and ammunition, I love when I can hear the distinction between the weaponry that's being fired, between the bombs that are being dropped, that attention to detail. We get that in the John Wick films from the team at Formosa uh, do that so well. So I always, that excites me when I can hear something like that in a film. But it's on Netflix, Outside the Wire, see it. It is wonderful. Well, that is all the time we have. Um, you can catch the show later this week on BehindTheLensOnline.net when it goes out as a podcast or on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, all those places. And then we'll be back next week uh, with Tyler Wayne is going to be here, is going to be with joining us live to talk about his new film, Goodbye Butterfly. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 